From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we speak to Dr. Amir Ahmed about Islamophobia. And following that conversation, Steve Phillips, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, joins us to discuss the political direction he believes the Democratic Party should take. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Since the coordinated attacks on September 11, 2001, there's been a rise in Islamophobia in America. Some feel those amours of hatred were stoked by then-candidate and now-President Donald Trump. But my guest, Dr. Amir Ahmed, argues that Islamophobia is an American cultural phenomenon that transcends political orthodoxy. Dr. Ahmed is a diversity consultant who has written widely on race, religion, and culture. Dr. Amir Ahmed, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have you on to discuss uh, Islamophobia. And Mm -hmm. for the purpose of this discussion, why don't we begin by having you define the term so that that when we're having this discussion, um, we're we're putting it in in the proper box? Well, I appreciate that because I think a lot of people think that Islamophobia is simply a phenomenon of uh, of religion, uh, but in reality, it's also an issue of racism, uh, because whether we like it or not, the, the perception is that uh, people who ascribe to the religion of, of Islam, uh, who are referred to as Muslims, uh, are perceived to be people of color, perceived to be non-white people, um, and that's often true. It's not always true, uh, but just given where the largest populations of Muslims on the world uh, in the world are, and, he, and that's even historically rooted, but we can talk about that later. Uh, but, but the reality is that um, a lot of the people who are subject to the implications of Islamophobia aren't even Muslims, or people who are perceived as Muslims because they may be of an ethnicity that gets associated. In fact, we saw an attack on a couple Indian people who were not Muslims in Kansas recently, and that's it's another, uh, once again an example of the implications um, affecting lots of different groups, not just people who associate with the religion of Islam. In that case, you're talking about uh, people who remember the Sikh religion, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think, I think those particular um, individuals were, were uh, uh, more of a Hindu background, mm-hmm. but you, you are right that the, the Sikh faith, um, that community as a proportion has been subjected to more hate crimes since 9-11 than any other community in the country. Uh, and again, we're talk- that's a completely different faith tradition, but because they descend of the uh, South Asian origin, for the most part, uh, their religion comes from India. And as part of the religion, a lot of the men uh, don't cut their hair and keep them in turbans. And so, you know, these racist folks, they'll come and attack them because they all just group us all together. It doesn't, right. You know, they don't make a distinction between any of us. And, and um, you know, unfortunately... You know, you know. Ironically, most Muslims don't wear turbans. So, you know, it's just again that's the that 
that's a gr great example of how this is an issue of racism in many ways in terms of the way it plays out because we all just get grouped together and lumped together and the hate's directed at all of us. Um, could you also uh, make the distinguish, distinguish between the difference uh, of uh, Arabs and Muslims? Because we that's, mm -hmm. that's another one we, yeah. we lumped together. So. Yeah, that's a very important um, distinction. I mean, uh, Arab... Uh, Arab identity is a language group, uh, you know, and there's some ethnicity associated with that. Um, so, you know, whether you talk about from Morocco to Egypt or, you know, Syria, the Gulf region, or, you know, Qatar and Arabia and all that. So those are all, you know, Arabic-speaking countries that are considered Arab people. But within those regions, you have diverse populations. And so, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, when they look at places like um, is Palestine, 20% of Palestinian people are Christian. And uh, in Lebanon, 50% of uh, people are Christian. So, you know, all Arabs are definitely not Muslim. Uh, and then, of course, the opposite is not true. Not, not all uh, Muslims are Arab. In fact, uh, Arabs are only about 18 to 20% of all the Muslims in, in the world, uh, so less than one in five. And the largest Muslim population in the world is Indonesia, and interestingly, the second largest is in India. So, and, you know, again, we, we hardly even hear about Muslims in India uh, at all, which is where my family comes from. And, and so, uh, again, you know, perception, media, all of these things impact who we think we're looking at when we talk about particular groups of people. You write, quote, I've been speaking around the United States on Islamophobia for years, and have, uh, after being asked by a, a colleague to present on a topic at the anti-racism conference made up mostly of social justice educators. Mm -hmm. After the presentation, I was shocked that a room full of anti-racism educators knew close to nothing on the topic of Islam and Islamophobia. Explain Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Explain that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that was, that was really disturbing for me. You know, um, a lot of folks um, who have dedicated their lives to fighting racism and, and inequity and discrimination, you know, this was a few years ago now. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, at that time, that was around 2008, 2009, I was shocked that that many years after 9-11 that my colleagues had not taken more time to learn more about these issues. Uh, and that falls into an issue just more broadly in, our, in my field is that oftentimes – you know, people, you know, have gotten stuck into conversations on race that are purely white and black. And, um, and, and not to say that's not an important uh, conversation with a very important history and, and dynamic to it, but the reality is that the issues in our country are very complicated and the implications of racism impact various communities in various ways. And for those of us who are doing this work, I, I think it's, it's our, our responsibility. I mean, like I have a master's in black studies, you know, an undergrad, you know, I'm not black. And, but, um, you know, I, to me, for me to be effective in the work that I do, if I don't have a knowledge about black history and culture and the way racism has been experienced by black people, then how am I going to be able to be effective at what I'm trying to accomplish and what, how I'm trying to educate other people. And so, you know, I felt that, you know, it was really important that my colleagues did, this, did you know, made this similar effort around experiences that might not be their own um, as well. And so, you know, yes, I was shocked. And even though I didn't want to 
be the Islamophobia guy, um, you know, I felt a responsibility because, you know, I realized, like, I was a carrier of information and knowledge based on experiences and, and education that, that, okay, I have a responsibility to make sure that other folks know more about this subject because it's an important um, uh, area uh, and salient topic uh, in our society today. And to that extent, uh, you see mm-hmm. Islamophobia as affecting America at large, transcending uh, political orthodoxy. Uh, how Absolutely. So? How so? Well, I, I mean, Islamophobia is not just a uh, right-wing phenomenon. A lot of people think that this is something that's, you know, exclusive to the political right uh, of the United States. And, you know, I would argue one of the biggest Islamophobes we have in our media today is Bill Maher who is a flaming liberal on HBO with an audience of about 5 million people. And week after week, and I, that's, this is very true right now, um, week after week he continues to try to convince quote-unquote liberals um, that uh, we need to carve out an exception of our bi- uh, uh, to, be, uh, to give permission for bigotry against Muslims. You know, that, that, uh, uh, that there are issues um, that he sees in the religion of Islam that are unique, uh, and therefore we, uh, we have a responsibility to shout it down and demonize it. And uh, individuals like him in particular, they, they make sure that they don't have anybody uh, from my community like myself who would be able to challenge that with any context or understanding of the topic. Um, but, but yeah, no, that, that, it has a place that, you know, a few years ago, you may remember the ground zero mosque controversy at, in New York city, um, which was not a ground zero and not a mosque. It, it was, was around the corner. Yeah. It was, a, it was a ways away. Yeah, that was for, yeah, it was around the corner. And it wasn't it, a mosque, be, right? It was a, it was a worship center. It wasn't a mosque though, right? R- right. You know what? They, they modeled it off the Jewish community center of New York, which was modeled off the YMCA. So people went buck wild crazy over a Muslim YMCA, which was in a building that used to be a Burlington Coat Factory. So, so not exactly hollow ground. Right. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, yeah, that center not, never got built. But, but the point about the partisan issues, is in, in all the polling, more than half of Democrats were against that center. You know, and the Anti-Defamation League came out against it. Uh, and so that speaks to the influence that kind of the rhetoric can have over a large swath of our society, not just, uh, not just you know, it's not reserved for a particular uh, political, a part of our political spectrum, uh, and, and just the misinformation, you know, the, 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 deg- the lack of context that people have on this topic is, is striking and shocking to me, and, and I think it should be to, to anyone who believes that we need to have context and information to be able to have a vibrant democracy in our country. In the work that you do, mm-hmm. do you at the core is it simply a matter of intolerance? Is it race? Is it ignorance of the religion? Is it a combination of factors? What's what's at the core of this for you? Yeah, it's all of the above, and that's all tied to fear. You know, I mean, um, there, you know, there's there's a lack of, of of information that's coming through our media, and I, I feel very comfortable saying that because uh, by within the first ten minutes of my talks. I've already dismantled so much misinformation that people have, right? I just give people – if I give people basic information about 
Islam and dispel a few myths, including the question that you had around Arab and Muslims, right? Um, when, when I give just the first 10 minutes, already people are shocked by what I'm telling them, right? That the religion isn't that different from Christianity and that, you know, that, um, and even more similar to Judaism and that, you know, all these different things, things well, what, about women's rights, you know, things like that. Why don't that you stay people, on that thread and talk specifically, if you would, about just some of those ignorances uh, about, about, about Islam in general? Yeah, well, I mean, well, first of all, people think that, I mean, if you base it off the media, you think that Islam was some satanic worshiping religion that's compelled to kill everybody. That, that's what these 1.7 billion people on the, around the, the world are believing, you know, which is insane, you know, <laughs> but, but, um, you know, there's you know, there's a lot of different understandings of the religion, but there's you know five basic pillars that hold up the religion, and that essentially everybody agrees upon. And first and foremost is the faith and declaration in the oneness of Allah. Allah simply being the Arabic word for God. So if you're an Arabic speaking Christian or Jew, you use the word Allah to refer to God, just like people who in English use the word God to refer to God, regardless of their faith. Um, but the Islamic tradition is referring to the God of Abraham. So, first of all, as Muslims, we consider ourselves to be part of the Abrahamic faith tradition. That in of itself is shocking for a lot of people. Okay, but uh, in addition, the so this kind of Abra- first pillar. I'm sorry, before you hold on, and the Abrahamic yeah. tradition is what mm-hmm. is the roots of also Judaism and Christianity. Absolutely, absolutely, and Jesus is the second to last prophet in the Islamic tradition. He's incredibly important. He's talked about in our Holy Scripture, the Quran, extensively. There's a whole chapter on Mary, and there's a belief in a virgin birth. You know, so these are not foreign concepts to people. You know, even if you're atheist, you're familiar with these concepts, right? And so in this country, in this society. So, you know, this is not abstract stuff. You know, this is not like, you know, some completely uh, unknown um a set of ideas or uh, or religious concepts that are completely unfamiliar to people. So when I go through these, you know, just the rest of them are, uh, the rest of the pillars are prayer daily, five times a day, you know, Ramadan, many of you have heard of Ramadan, the fasting during where we abstain from eating and drinking from sunrise to sunset, charity, Muslims are required to give charity, um, give a percentage of their wealth away each year to the poor, and then finally a pilgrimage to Mecca if you're able to do so. Now, now, the, just this alone, I, I have found people are surprised by. Now, again, if the media's job is to give people context and information, give the public information to be able to understand the world that they're looking at, why would these basic concepts and ideas not be uh, available to people? Why, why, are, why are these things 15 years after 9-11 – why are these things still new ideas to the vast majority of the general public? You know what I'm saying? That we have to ask that question. You know, why is it that our corporate media fails to give basic context when it comes to this this topic? You know, it's not like Islam hasn't been a relevant topic for these past 15 years. You know what I mean? So why is it? You know, and I'm not going to answer the question because I don't think that I can speak to the agenda of various corporate media entities, but I think the question has to be asked. Well, you, you mentioned these last 15, six, uh, 15 so years, uh, post mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. but but in fairness, uh, mm-hmm. Muslims being depicted in a negative light is not a post nine eleven phenomenon. No, I, not at all. I, growing up watching movies, I don't I don't recall ever a movie. Uh, where a Muslim was depicted in a positive light, unless it was a white actor playing a Muslim, or or even I think of the old Popeye the Sailor cartoons. I mean, so Absolutely. so 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 this negativity has been going on for for quite some time, has it not? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, this is one in my talks. You know, we spend some time talking about you know the last five hundred years. You know, talking about the entire process of colonialism and. You know, and 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 the the um, the phenomenon of Orientalism, as, as defined by Edward Said in his book Orientalism, about the the sense of superiority and exotification towards Eastern cultures, particularly um, towards Arab cultures, and, and so you know, and of course, again, the demonization is part of what justifies the colonization, right? Um, and so that is something that is ongoing, and then of course, you know. In the 20th century, you have, you know, the wars, um, again, justifying, uh, you know, in the United States examples, you know, our reason to have Iran as an adversary, you know, who overthrew, you know, a a dictator that we installed known as the Shah. That was 1952. Yeah, exactly. So there's all these examples. And again, sadly, the, the general public doesn't have that context. And so, therefore, when we demonize populations of people, I mean, you you may remember Anthony Bourdain went to Iran on his show on CNN, and he this is this guy is a flaming liberal, and he was shocked. He was like, "Wow, like these people are really nice and friendly, and you know, and treating me well and pleasant and peaceful." And it's like, why would you expect anything else? You know, where where did your impression come from? Otherwise. Well, that's shaped by media narratives, you know, and that's shaped by our politics that really has framed, you know, various populations of people, including the Iranian people, as our enemy, as people who are against us and don't share our values, and therefore we must view them as an adversary. Well, but but I think you would also, I think you would agree with me that othering someone uh, Mm -hmm. is is crucial to the American narrative. Absolutely. Absolutely, and that, that's the reason why I think that um, we starting to understand the relationship between different community struggles historically is so critically important. You know, um, you know, I, I mentioned the last 500 years. Well, what else happened in that during that 500 years? We know the Atlantic slave trade was tied to that process. You know what I mean? And, and as a person who's done the research on this, is tied to my dissertation. I also know that 20 to 25 percent. Of black uh, of Africans enslaved Africans brought to British North America were Muslims, you know, and and forty eight point seven came from M- Muslim rule territories. So we so there's a relationship between you know the the process of colonization that's happened in different parts of the world uh, in relationship to European and and now more broadly Western, if, including North American culture and society, and so. And so these are not disconnected phenomena, but because we look at it from a very specific lens of what's happening right in front of us, we don't always see the relationship between Islamophobia and, you know, uh, the struggle around civil rights uh, of black folks here in this country, uh, uh, as well as, of course, other our native brothers and sisters and Latino and indigenous people throughout the Americas. Well, well you know, but America can... 
bifurcate. I mean, it can it, mm-hmm. it can certainly look at the Crusades. It can look at the pogroms. It can look at Christianity mm-hmm. decided with apartheid and decided with Jim Crow, decided with slavery. It can look at the Klan and say, well, that's not Christianity in totality. Christianity. In totality. Right. So even though the Klan is a Christian organization, it can, right. so it can do that. So yes. it does it when it's convenient, and that's that's the role of whiteness. That's why whiteness is so and white supremacy is so important in this country. And and when I say this, I'm not condemning every person who we call identify and call white. I'm talking about the phenomenon of 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 whiteness, and you know, and, in which you know we have privileged and decided that there is uh, there is a dominant way of operating in this country. And some people can assimilate into that and be viewed as white within that and can benefit from it. But uh, and then there, but then there's those of us who we will not make these exceptions for. We will not say, you know, uh, that Muslims, uh, general Muslims like myself and my family and everybody I've ever known, that we somehow are uh, separate, uh, that we are different from these extremists. No, we'll group us all in, you know. Uh, you know, and when you know when we when a black person does something, we're going to group all black people in. You know, but when a white person does the same thing, we're going to treat that person as an individual. You know, and we're going to say that person does not uh, is 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 crazy. You know, Dylan Roof is crazy, right? And so white folk, white men aren't going around worried about whether or not they're going to get grouped in with Dylan Roof. You know what I mean? Dylan Roof, so, the um, the the mass shooter at. Uh, uh... Charleston, Charleston yeah. and Bethel. Bethel. Was it Bethel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charleston. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, especially in the last few weeks, we've had a bunch of terrorist attacks by white men lately. You know? And where's the wall-to-wall coverage? <laughs> you know? And, and so, it's, it, you know, a lot of people don't realize, realize that Muslims as a demographic in the United States commit less crime than any other demographic in this country by far. It's not even close. Right. But when, you know, the Orlando attack happens, it's wall to wall coverage. And we call that a terrorist attack, you know, as opposed to a crazy individual, which he was with some issues, with some issues, and with some serious <laughs> issues. Right. Right. But because somehow this guy at one point um, acknowledged, you know, wants to say said something about ISIS at some point then that, therefore, it's terrorism. So what we've done is we've racialized what terrorism is, right? We've said that th- when, when the Orlando do- person does it, when San Bernardino does it, and these are horrible people. We shouldn't be, you know, we, it's, I mean, we shouldn't be, you know, um, feeling sorry for them. They've done horrible things, right? But we have to ask ourselves, why do, why do I and people who look like me get grouped in, you know, when, when it's the Orlando attacker, and why do, and why does uh, do other people not get grouped in when it's Dylan Roof in Charleston and and these various other attacks that are happening right now these days? Well, what I hear you saying is why does Allah Akbar equal terrorists? Right, absolutely, yeah. Because I mean, Allah Akbar just means God is great. You know, I mean, uh, when you pray when, as a Muslim, when you pray every single day, when we pray, that's what we say while we're praying. Because we're acknowledging God's greatness, right? I, I, in in no way, shape, or form, anywhere in my life could I ever imagine using that phrase to be able to justify violence. That is the last thing on my mind 
when when <laughs> when that phrase is coming through my head. I have a question, uh, and um, mm-hmm. I want I want two reactions uh, mm-hmm. first. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, here's the here's the question, and, uh, mm-hmm. and we've heard this a lot on um, talk shows when, mm-hmm. when, when they're talking about Islam, and you'll hear this: Where are the leaders in the Muslim community who will speak <laughs> out against radical jihadists? Now, yeah. the fir- now the first my first question is simply: when, What did you hear as a Muslim? Right. What did you just hear? Um. What did I hear when you said that, or what did I hear when? Whenever it said, when I just said, it, whenever it said, whether you just hear, hear, yeah. hear I'm, I'm sure you've heard it before. Oh yes. When, oh, yeah. when that is said, what do you hear? They have been. They they have. <laughs> we have been. We've been we've been saying that the whole time. But here's the thing. First of all, we've been saying it. Second of all, we're not heard. Third of all, uh, that. You know, if you look at the, at, at, we're talked about a lot in the media, if you, you may notice, right? People are often talking about us, but where are we? <laughs> you, you don't see us talk, there talking about ourselves, right? There's other people framing us to us, but they won't give us the platform to be able to, to stand up for ourselves and be like, hey, wait a minute. You know, hey, I'm an American. 9-11 happened to us, too. You know what I mean? We were victimized too. A lot of Muslims died on 9-11. My brother and his family live in Manhattan. We were scared for their lives. You know what I mean? When the cell phone towers were down, we couldn't get a hold of them. We were, we were scared for, the, for their well-being, and we found out later that my brother was actually treating victims at, at the hospital he worked at. Right? We're Americans. But, but the thing is that as a country, we, people, didn't, people didn't know who we were, so we went from this unknown group to this group with all this suspicion around us, right? And when we were speaking out, when we were saying, hey, wait a minute, this is in no way, shape, or form represents us or our religion, we, we didn't have the platform. Now, I could say I'm not going to let us off the hook. I'm, as a community, I, back then, we weren't that well organized. And I'm, I'll be the first to say that, right? But, but there's also an absolving of the media's responsibility in giving us the voice and the platform to be able to say, hey, this does not represent us. And, and, and I think that the fact, because of that, that's part of what shades pe- people in the back of their mind about, okay, do these people really, are they really against this stuff or not? You know what I mean? Because, because they don't have enough counter-narrative from us to say, no, we don't. You know, they don't see us, they don't hear us enough to be able to know for sure. You know what I mean? So in the back of people's minds, you know, there's still that question, like, do they really support this stuff or not? You know, and, and I see that when people come to my talks. I see that when they show up and they, they're just so desperately wanting someone to give them reliable information about, about our religion, about who we are as a community and what we believe and what we care about. And just, just please tell me something because – I can't believe that 1.7 billion people hate it, all, all hate us. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's something in the back of a lot of people's minds that is like, there's something weird about this. And part of it is because they don't have information. But you, you've, you've already touched on uh, the, the second part of my question when I was going to mm-hmm. say, how do you respond? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reframe that question ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of... Uh, uh, 
controversy, if you will, a lot of discussion, uh, political talking points that President mm-hmm. Obama wouldn't say radical jihadists, and, and the current president mm-hmm. has made it a point to say that. When you radical s- Islam, radical, actually. yeah, radical Islam. Yeah, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. rad- radical Islam. When you hear mm-hmm. that, um, what goes through your mind? Uh, I think I hear an attempt to try to associate all Muslims with um, extremism, right? Which, um, and I, th- I hear a political agenda, and I hear a desire to, ha- to, to have a religious kind of um, conflict, a religious-based conflict. And, and I think that we all know that within our American politics, there are constituencies of people who very much view this conflict that's going on in the world through the lens of religion, right, as, as a kind of a battle between, you know, uh, between Islam and Christianity or, or Western Judeo-Christian values, however you want, however these constituencies want to frame it. Or they, they might not, and even when they don't say it, there's plenty of people who think that. And so to me, uh, but they're not saying it necessarily. But so there, there is such a widespread sentiment of that. And so there's, there's been this deep desire to make this association, right, um, to be able to kind of placate that, that constituency to say, look, we're taking on Islam. You know, and we're not just – and so it's kind of trying to have it both ways. It's like we're taking on the extremists and we're taking on Islam at the same time, right? And, and Obama was really trying to avoid that. Right? He was trying to mitigate that, and he was willing to take the hits from it, that's for sure, you know, from, from this, this kind of politics in the United States um, in order to be able to serve that broader benefit. Because they know when they look out in the world, they see 1.7 billion Muslims. The last thing that we should want is for all those people out there to feel, even just the way that I just said, you know, to feel like they're being attacked and that we're against you as a Muslim simply because you're associated with this religion, right? Uh, and, and that hurts our strategic interest in trying to build those alliances and having those relationships to be able to marginalize the extremists. You know what I mean? It's not that complicated, right? Um, and so but we see people like Steve Bannon and so forth. That Their whole ideology is all coming out. You know, the, the, their, their ideology, their orientation is to have a religious war. That is what... In particular, Steve Bannon's philosophy is all about, you know, and so the idea of let we have to elevate this language that radical. This is that it's Islam, you know. Even even if you want to say it's a radical, and and again, even like people like Bill Maher have been have been saying this stuff. They they very very much view they want to pathologize the religion and say that there's something in the actual religion. It's not just the extremists. You know, and therefore you can group people like me and others in, uh, and, and in many ways it, it's a way of maintaining, again, a certain kind of uh, sense of superiority and even moral superiority, that we are the morally superior group of people. And so therefore, what we do in in the world is justified because we have this morally uh, superior position in relationship to these 1.7 billion people. Dr. Mir Ahmed, thank you for being on the public morality today. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Dr. Amir Ahmed. Stay tuned as we discuss the direction of the Democratic Party with Steve Phillips from the Center for American Progress.
Welcome back. Since the conclusion of the 2016 presidential election, Democrats have been searching for the reason they lost, along with the elixir needed in order to return to prominence. Many Democrats have concluded the party has moved too far to the left, calling for a more centrist party that might appeal to many of the economically marginalized white voters who supported Donald Trump. But my next guest, Steve Phillips, is making a different argument. In a persuasive op-ed recently published in the New York Times, Phillips argues Democrats need to be bold, and with the use of data, he argues for the party to remain on its leftward trajectory. Phillips is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Steve Phillips, welcome to the Public Morality. Thanks for having me on. In your recent New York Times piece, uh, you don't subscribe to the widely held belief, including many within the Democratic Party, that Hillary Clinton lost the general election because of the disaffected white voter. Right. So more specifically, it's the, what I'm focusing on is white voters did not go to Donald Trump in a way that cost her the election. And that actually, if you look, when I ran the numbers and did the analysis, that there was a larger number of former Obama voters who moved to the third and fourth party candidates than who moved to the Trump voters. So most of the analysis has been trying to figure out how to get the people who voted for Trump um, whereas I'm actually making the argument that that's not the population that they need to focus on. They could have won had they held more of those who went third and fourth party. In fact, you, you, if correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you cited that a reversal of, of simply 77,774 votes in key battleground states would have produced a different outcome. Uh, and but you also also you go in that also in that piece to show that where some of the people who you who many assume would vote for Clinton underperformed, right? And so yeah, so that uh, in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, it was slightly under seventy eight thousand votes that flipped this election to Trump. And so, in it's really looking at then what happened there. So in each of those states, well certainly in Michigan, Michigan and Wisconsin. There was a drop-off of Democratic voters from the level of 2012. But the increase was on the third and fourth party side. So if you look at Wisconsin, that the, there was also a drop-off, like uh, Clinton's drop-off, um, it was close to 200,000 voters. But, but Trump also had a drop-off in Wisconsin of 9,000 voters. And so they did, those voters did not gravitate over to Trump. There was an increase of 150,000 voters in Wisconsin uh, for the third and fourth party candidates. So that's the point that I'm making is that everyone's in this kind of existential crisis around Trump ran this campaign on racism and sexism and xenophobia, and he won. And so what does that mean in terms of our message and who we're going after, et cetera, whereas people are not looking at why did those voters vote for Johnson and Stein? And what do we need to do to get them back? Because if we can get them back, then we don't have to worry electorally about uh, getting the Trump voters. But, Steve, as you, as you well know, um, this is the season, especially if you're the party who lost, this is the season to be reactionary. So the, so there's a reactionary sense, um, that at least that what I've looked at is people saying that, that, that the Democratic Party shouldn't move left. It should move to the center or, or more to the right. It's gone left. Uh, too far left already. How, how do you respond to those within your party who, ha- who hold that view? Yeah, that, it's very much of a uh, 
knee-jerk reaction um, that, which is at some level, I think people have just been kind of like, some people have been like holding their tongue. It's like, all right, well, Obama won. You guess the black guy won twice, so we can't say too much. But the, the speed and the velocity to which people have rushed to this conclusion about, okay, now we've got to go back to get the white working class voters, the conservative white working class voters. It is important to realize that there are some uh, who, are, who are with us. So there's a very default, reflexive, and I think pent-up reaction that we're seeing in the Democratic Party um, around, it's frankly, to who, which voters people think are most important. We lost in uh, Pennsylvania because there were 140,000 black voters who didn't vote, who had voted in 2012. And so you don't hear all the you know, drama and angst about what are we doing to get those black voters back, but there's a, a default reflexive uh, mindset within many people in the Democratic Party that the most important voters are those white working class voters, and we've got to do everything we can to get them or more of them when, in fact, that's not, the, it's not required and it's not the prescription for victory that we've seen over the, uh, through the Obama campaign. Well, historically speaking, um, I, I know you weren't around when Andrew Jackson was elected, but has there, has there ever been a U.S. election where there wasn't a segment of the population that would be defined as marginalized? Have we not had a marginalized segment voting populace? Well, for, for a long time, a lot of people uh, couldn't vote. Right. So, that, that would be defined as marginalized, in my view. Yeah, <laughs> right. So we technically have actually only legally had a democracy in this country since 1965 when we passed the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. And so that's, and, and then that's when you've seen this explosion in large numbers of uh, African Americans being able to vote who had previously not been able to vote. And with the uh, Immigration and Nationalization uh, Act passed in 65, you had large numbers of Asians and Latinos finally able to become citizens. Prior to that point, you had to be a, quote, free white person, close quote, to become a uh, U.S. citizen. And that was the, the founding law of the country had been upheld for centuries by the Supreme Court. So it's only since that time, and, and that uh, in terms of who's marginalized, who's not, that we've actually had the full population even legally able to vote. So, yes, in 65 we've had you know, marginalized groups, but the largest... Uh, effort to exclude groups really has been African-Americans and I would say secondarily Latinos. Well, as you mentioned, um, going back to your previous answer when you mentioned how many uh, black voters didn't vote in Pennsylvania, uh, uh, does, does, does that suggest in some way that the emergence of Barack Obama uh, for many created, um, for lack of a better word, uh, a, an arrested development in that the Clinton team were counting on people who just simply didn't show up because Barack Obama was not on the ballot. Yes, and so it's, well, I talk in, in, in my book about what I call the tyranny of the white swing voter, in that so much of U.S. politics is constrained, certainly progressive politics is constrained by fear of alienating uh, the more moderate or conservative white swing voters. And so the, the uh, demographic lesson of the victories. We, we have had a person of color on the Democratic ticket. We've won. That's what happened in 2008. That happened in 2012 
And I use in my book the 2012 most significantly because Obama lost 5 million votes, 5 million white votes between 2008 and 2012 and still won. And yet, despite that example, the Clinton team made a calculation that they needed to try to appeal to these conservative white swing voters, and, and they made a calculation that it would be better to have a white male on the ticket with her than to have a person of color. And I do think that was partly responsible for the lack of enthusiasm and excitement um, that uh, contributed to her defeat. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Steve Phillips, a fellow from the Center for American Progress. But that's far from the sum total of the work that you're involved in. Now, in your answer, in, in your last answer, last two answers, you said my book. So you're morally obligated to talk about the plug your book right now here on the book ground. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. So yeah, I spent uh, two years writing the last few years, ta- last year, you know, talking about my book, Brown is the New White how the demographic revolution has created a new American majority. And so what, and the reason I wrote that because I became alarmed that too many people in the Democratic Party and progressive movement were writing off the electoral significance of Obama's victory and ascribing it just to his charismatic personality and failing to understand that there is a mathematical new American majority consisting of, large, of the overwhelming majority of people of color in a meaningful minority of whites, around 37, 38%. And that is, in fact, a majority of the country and a majority of the voting population. And that's what I lay out in Brown as the New White and try to document that in some um, detail. So the next time you're on the public morality, I, I trust that you will not be so shy about the work you're doing. It's, 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 you, it's a free segment to brag. Do not worry about it. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> um, you supported uh, Keith Ellison for chair of the Democratic Party. Is that correct? Well, I did not endorse. I was, uh, I am a fan of Keith, and I spoke favorably of him. Um, and I would have been very happy to have seen him win. And I didn't know uh, Tom Petters as well, but I knew people who were supporting him. So I was uh, enthusiastic, knowledgeable enough to be enthusiastic about Keith's candidacy and hopeful in terms of what Petters could do, certainly in terms of the people who he had. Uh, around him and has around him. Well, now that uh, former uh, Labor Secretary Tony Perez has been elected to the party's chair, how how does that impact uh, some of the suggestions that you put forth in the New York Times piece? Well, I'm actually quite hopeful, uh, particularly because of terms of who his team is. And so one of the key people on his team and his core advisors is uh, a woman in strategist named Emmy Ruiz. So Emmy is a young uh, Latina from Texas um, who has one of the best track records of both putting together a team that is led by, largely by people of color, organizing in a critical battleground state and winning. So she was the state director for uh, Clinton in Nevada in the primary and delivered that state for him then, for her then, and then she was the state director in Colorado. Um, where she delivered the state, and her team was 70% women and people of color in terms of her top leadership piece. And so her understanding and approach to politics is exactly what we need to have happen. No more relying just on these 30-second TV ads, trying to persuade and change the minds of reluctant and resistant uh, conservative white swing voters. Hiring staff, going door-to-door, 
organizing and turning out the new American majority with its cornerstones of people of color is the direction we need to go in. That's Emmy's track record, and she then that's who uh, Tom was relying on um, to get him to the position, and I think to be able to uh, help to uh, lead the party. So I'm very encouraged around who's around him and their track record and their strategic orientation, and the fact that he hired uh, that he made the motion to uh, put Keith as the uh, deputy chair. And the reason I like uh, uh, Keith, I've been impressed with his work, is he's actually increased voter turnout in, uh, in his district in Minnesota every year, and even in the off years, proving what many people think is not possible in terms of increasing voter participation. But if you go door-to-door, hire staff, do souls-to-the-polls programs, picking people up at church, taking them to the polls, you can get more people out to vote. So the combination of those things, I think the party is going to be in a much more positive direction now um, with that partnership at the helm. Uh, Steve, if you were king for a day, uh, would you continue utilizing the superdelegates? That's a good question. Um, Probably not. Um, I mean, I, I came of age politically... Uh, during the 1980s and the Rainbow Coalition. I'm a proud child of the Rainbow Coalition, Jesse Jackson's 84 and 88 campaigns. The superdelegate system was, if not created, certainly accelerated after the 84 Jackson campaign, largely with an eye to blocking the path of someone like Jesse Jackson. And so it was very much created by the establishment to blunt the appeal of uh, a more, you know, insurgent grassroots progressive candidacy. And I think the other reality is that both between, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders' uh, success and then ultimately Trump's success, we're we're in a new world. So this notion around having, uh, and also even technologically, you know, just like this, the disruptive technologies that now exist in terms of media and then this whole you know sharing economy piece you can't control things the way that you used to whether they even that whether that was ever good or not that's not how things function now. you have to lead by ideas by vision um, by inspiration not by tightly controlling uh, the the, the the practices and the decision making in these you know cloaked back rooms uh, when I read your article um, I, I it raised two issues for me and I'd like to have you comment if, uh, if you agree or not. Um, one, it was a short-term recommendation uh, as things, uh, uh, as we get closer to the midterm elections. But it's also uh, a, a, longer, a longer-term vision, not just for the upcoming presidential election in, in 2020, but how the party should go beyond. How do you see that? Yeah, well, very absolutely. I think that's part of the... Uh, Challenge was part of the resistant, the uh, failure in 2016 is that the Democratic Party and the people who have led it were too disconnected from the people who were most on the front lines of fighting the struggles within our country. So, whether it's immigration reform, whether it's Black Lives Matter and police accountability issues, even just the more broad, the economic inequality, the racial wealth gap, the the party had always been reluctant to connect with and engage those constituencies out of fear 
of alienating the conservative white swing voter. And so that clearly didn't work. Um, but they continue to always try to straddle that line. They've refused to go all in around uh, agenda and, and a vision and a, and a, a um, priority list of supporting full justice and equality within our society. And so because they have always feared there were not enough numbers, that you actually couldn't win. And so that it is a long-term prescription of what I'm uh, suggesting, is that if we actually inspire and connect with the people who are fighting these struggles, there are enough numbers for us to be able to win elections. But the, the consultants who have been in charge of running the campaign um, campaigns have been reluctant to move in that direction. This has been a long-standing problem. I actually have a chapter in my book quoting from Andy Young's uh, frustration, 1984. He talks about uh, a bunch of smart-ass white boys, and I can't tell them anything. So I have a chapter called Fewer Smart-Ass White Boys. Is that, and if you look at this past election, the billion and a half dollars spent by the Democratic Party and all the allied progressive groups, all of the entities who controlled that spending, uh, the leaders of those groups were white. There was not a single person of color who had uh, check-writing authority over significant amounts of money in this past election. And that is not a prescription for victory in a party that's 47% people of color and will soon be majority people of color. Well, that sort of goes back to your previous answer when I asked you about superdelegates, and, and, you, and you talked about um, sort of that need to control. Is, is, that, is that not reflective here? Just oh, Absolutely. And I think it played itself out in the vice presidential pick. It played itself out in the caution around with which people tend to even engage around Black Lives Matter. And so no one's actually willing to stand up and say it's not acceptable for police to be shooting and killing unarmed black people and getting away with it. I mean, that's just a basic human principle. But then there's been so much fear that, well, what are the, you know, suburban white women going to think if we say that? Failing to appreciate that there are actually enough suburban white women who would actually support this kind of a direction. Now, what, when one surveys uh, the Democratic Party, um, at least the perception, there, 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 there's a uh, national perception, in my view, that the bench of the party is thin. Is that an accurate uh, um, perception? And if so, how does one overcome that? No, it's not accurate because it's it's only thin. And if you look at the narrow um, lens around what even who's qualified and who's appropriate, if you would if you had looked at the bench in two thousand five, you wouldn't have seen that Barack Obama was on that bench. And so this gets back to the conception around really what drives politics in victory. And so is it just a question of having the right person at the top, or are there underlying forces and groups and constituencies who are really the ones driving change? Um, certainly on the Republican side, you wouldn't have said a completely inexperienced, you know, uh, uh, bumbling, uh, you know, you know pseudo-billionaire would be on the bench. But he was able to tap into and unleash really the backlash and the hate within the country in ways that propelled him forward. But even having said that, there are plenty of great, I mean, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, there's going to be a whole wave in 2018 of very exciting candidates of color running for governor. Stacey Abrams, I'm hoping, will run for governor in Georgia. Andrew Gillum, mayor of Tallahassee, looking at running in Florida. 
Ben Jealous, may, former head of the NOC, may run in Maryland for a governor. There's lots of leaders uh, if we would just open our eyes and uh, 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 move from the framework around what a leader looks like, has historically looked like in a country that's been run uh, almost exclusively by white men, we'd see lots of leaders out there. How does the Democratic Party overcome, uh, and these are my words, um, uh, the oxymoronic conundrum of having a majority uh, of those polled siding with their issues while unable to win elections in a, in a substantive way? Well, about, there's a disconnect between really what happens in, in, in D.C. and in the policymaking uh, positions and what the people are fighting for and experiencing on the ground. And so even in, like in 2010, we lost the House because there was dramatic drop-off in voter participation in 2010 from, to, from the uh, 2008 election. We did not make it clear, and there was this hesitance to fully em- support and embrace and push uh, for health care reform. But if, the, if it had been clear and we had told the story that you all came out and backed this president to get him in office to do these different things, and now everyone is attacking him and resisting his agenda, we need you to come out again. That would have had a different – people would have understood that there were things at stake. It would have played into the narrative around trying to change the country. They wanted to see it. But instead, everyone was paralyzed and fearful. Well, if I say something about health care, it's going to alienate uh, the conservative swing voter. So we've got to believe in ourselves that our agenda is a majority agenda and that there will be people who will get behind it. And if we forcefully articulate that, then people will gravitate towards us. Steve Phillips from the Center for American Progress and author. Thank you, sir, for being on the Public Morality today. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.